SBS Radio. SBS, a world of difference. You're with NITV Radio, on mobile, online and on radio. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land NITV broadcasts from, Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and their elders, past and present. We also acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes and clans we broadcast to, from the mountains to the plains, from the desert to the sea, from freshwater to saltwater. Yama, welcome to NITV Radio. Bertrand Tungandame, Gaya. I'm Bertrand Tungandame, and I'm very happy to be with you this Friday, August 19. Now, coming up in your program today, well, yesterday, August 18, was Vietnam Veterans Day, a day we celebrate and remember those men and women who served in the Vietnam War. This year, the Australian War Memorial had a special emphasis on First Nations men and women who served in this war, releasing a preliminary list of 250 Indigenous service men and women who served in Vietnam and appealing on the public to provide more information to help identify and recognize First Nations people's service to the country, especially considering the difficulties and discrimination those men and women had to overcome in order to enlist. Well, on NITV Radio for, Vet- for Vietnam Veterans Day, we spoke to Yamaji Elder and Vietnam War veteran Graham Taylor, who shared with us his story about his time in the Army as an Aboriginal man and serving in Vietnam. In the program, we also explore the PM's trip in the Torres Strait, discussing Indigenous voice to Parliament with Islander elders. NITV Radio will also feature a conversation with three young actors ahead of the world premiere of Somebody's Daughter Theatre's company's She Swallowed That Lie, which has been created and performed by women with a lived experience, with a lived prison experience, and marginalized young people from regional Victoria. All this and more, many more coming to you on NITV Radio right after the news. Australia Day 1972 saw the first Aboriginal embassy directed outside Parliament. The native title legislation must be amended. And they've walked this land so many times before anybody came. I am sorry. Bulletin, Prime Minister Albanese meets indigenous female leaders on his second day in the Torres Strait. No agreement reached between Serbia and Kosovo after crisis talks in Brussels. And in sport, AFL coach Alastair Clarkson turns down a role at the Bombers instead committing to North Melbourne. Minister Anthony Albanese will meet with female indigenous leaders to consult on the indigenous voice to parliament on the second and final day of his trip to the Torres Strait. Accompanied by Indigenous Australians Minister Linda Burney and Queensland Senator Anita Green, Mr Albanese is using the visit to hear from local elders, community groups and young Torres Strait Islander people. He's called the Indigenous Voice to Parliament an outstretched hand of friendship from First Nations people to the rest of Australia. Uh, We know that if you consult people and give them 
that sense of ownership over change that impacts them, you'll get greater buy-in, you'll get better results. And that's why uh, there's such strong support. Anthony Albanese says he has unanimous support for the voice to parliament and backing for constitutional recognition for indigenous people. He plans to put the question to Australians about whether they support Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders being recognised in the constitution with the voice to parliament. Teachers in the top end are walking off the job today with the chief minister claiming the industrial action is politically motivated. The Northern Territory Department of Education says it has been advised of the four-hour strike action over the public sector's four-year pay freeze. The department says while schools will be disrupted, they will remain open. Minister Natasha Files says the action is somehow connected to the upcoming August 20 Fanny Bay by-election where Labour is battling for the key seat. Former Prime Minister John Howard has warned Australia is failing its moral obligation to help Afghans waiting for refugee visas. With a lengthy backlog of applications, many Afghans who assisted Australian troops and agencies are living in hiding from Taliban retribution. Last week, SBS News revealed 211,122 Afghans had applied for a visa, but as of July 31, only around 5,900 had been granted since the fall of Kabul. Mr. Howard, who oversaw the beginning of Australia's military involvement in Afghanistan, says this is not good enough. We, we have let those people down and we haven't discharged that obligation. I felt very strongly about that. And to the extent that either side of politics has not discharged that obligation, then I criticise them. A man sentenced over his role in the deadly Bali bombings could be released early after serving only around half of his original 20-year jail term. The attack in 2002 killed more than 200 people, including 88 Australians, and it's less than two months away from the 20th anniversary of the bombing. The government says it is making diplomatic representations to Indonesia because the proposed early release could add trauma to the victims' families. State and territory leaders are being encouraged to help develop Australia's first national electric vehicle strategy in a bid to reduce costs. The inaugural Electric Vehicle Summit is being held today in Canberra to explore usage of the environmentally friendly cars. Australia is significantly behind in terms of low emissions cars with only about eight choices on the market valued at under $60,000. But a charge to the definition of fuel-efficient vehicles in luxury car tax laws would potentially make electric vehicles more competitive. Climate Change Minister Chris Bowen says the price of electric vehicles sends many motorists to petrol and diesel cars instead. Now naysayers point to the cost of electric vehicles, that they're out of reach of ordinary families as a reason not to drive further uptake. Now to be fair, to an extent they have a point. There are many consumers who are interested in buying an EV But even if they could access the limited supply, they can't afford it. The European Union's foreign policy chief says he's not giving up hope after after the leaders of both Serbia and Kosovo failed to reach an agreement about border issues. Serbia's President Aleksandar Vucic and Kosovo's Prime Minister Albin Kurti held talks in Brussels but mutual mutual recognition following Kosovo, declaring independence from Serbia amid heightened tensions in the Balkans.
Joseph Borrell says it was a crisis management meeting and both sides need to seek out solutions. The international community doesn't want to see renewed tensions in the coming periods and the parties will be fully responsible for any escalation on the ground. And unhappily, we did not get to an agreement today. No, sorry. But it is not the end of the story. Both leaders agreed that the process needs to continue and the discussion will resume in the coming days. The French Interior Minister has visited a devastated campsite where extreme weather brought down trees on the island of Corsica, claiming six lives. A teenage girl is among the victims who were caught up in a storm that brought wind, hail and heavy rain, causing severe damage to local campsites. Minister Gerald Dunmer has uh, shared his condolences with the families who lost loved ones and says his government is working through the rescues now. Extremely violent winds, which were unexpected, or in any case unexpected at such intensity, came and took away the lives of six people, among them young children, leaving 20 wounded, four of which are seriously hurt and under critical condition. Two others also died in nearby Italy in separate incidents related to storms on Wednesday night. Israel has raided the office of several Palestinian entities it had previously listed as terrorist organizations, with Western diplomats visiting afterwards to show support for the outlawed groups. Non-European countries have rejected Israel's accusations against the groups, citing little evidence that the United States says it's worried about office closures of non-government organizations. Israel says it will provide extra information to the U.S. about the shutdowns around Ramallah, a city in the West Bank, and the United Nations has also condemned the closures. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz says he will temporarily lower taxes on natural gas to ease the financial pressures on households as energy costs soar. It comes a day after Chancellor Scholz faced hostile protests about the rising cost of gas during a town hall event outside Berlin. The government has lowered the consumption tax on gas from 19% to 7% until the end of March 2024. Chancellor, Chancellor Scholz says further measures, measures will be announced in the coming weeks. This is another step towards relief. I have said you'll never walk alone. In the next few weeks, we will put together a third relief package to alleviate the great pressure that is weighing on many citizens, but also businesses. The exact form of the package will be discussed in confidence with the government. The question of justice is key to ensure that the country remains united during this crisis. A federal court has ordered the Justice Department put forward reductions committing to part of the affidavit supporting the search warrant on former President Donald Trump's estate. The U.S. judge says he is leaning towards releasing some of the evidence to justify the search of Mr. Trump's Florida home last week, despite objections by the Justice Department. 
The department has until next Thursday to file the redacted version of the affidavit and prosecutors have the chance to appeal if they do not agree with the proposed file. Attorney Dina Schulman, who represents Dow Jones and Company Inc., says there's a public interest in having access and in monitoring government affairs at all levels. Today what was unsealed is the motion to seal the search warrant, which you all have the underlying search warrant, and the order on the motion to seal the search warrant. I would expect the motion to be fairly generic in describing that we have a search warrant, Your Honor, that we would like you to seal, and I would expect the order to be fairly generic. We agree that your search warrant should be sealed. The FBI seized classified and top secret information during a search at Mr. Trump's estate a week ago. A judge in the United States has refused to grant to grant bail to the 24-year-old man accused of warning novelist Salman Rushdie before a lecture. Hadi Mata appeared at a hearing in a western New York courtroom after a grand jury indicted him on charges. He's pleaded not guilty to second-degree attempted murder and assault charges. Supporters of the author, who suffered serious injuries, say the attack was an attempt to harm freedom of expression. A James Cook University study shows hospital and ambulance demand rises significantly during heat waves, killing more people than any other natural hazard. The report explored extreme heat events and heat waves between 2000 and 2020, finding a notable increase in hospital admissions for various conditions. The study shows Australia had experienced consistently more frequent frequent heat, heat waves and longer duration, which are attributed to the effects of climate change. And to sport in the AFL, four-time Premiership coach Alastair Clarkson has committed to leading North Melbourne in 2023, turning down a possible job at Essendon. Clarkson is returning to the club where he first began his playing career back in 1987 and it will be the Kangaroos' fourth full-time coach in five years. He departed Hawthorne at the end of 2021, a year before his contract was due to, was due to end. The move raises further uncertainty about the coaching potential at the Bombers. And now having a look at the weather around the country. Broome, a sunny day on the top of 33. Perth, cloudy 19. Adelaide, late showers 15. Melbourne, a shower or two developing 16 degrees. Hobart, much the same, 14. Albury-Wodonga, sunny 13. Canberra, a shower or two 14. Wollongong, showers 18 degrees. Sydney, a shower or two 19. Newcastle, similar conditions 21. Brisbane, sunny 26. Townsville, partly cloudy 25. Cairns, a mostly sunny day 27. Alice Springs, sunny 19, Darwin, sunny 33 degrees, and the Torres Strait Islands, a sunny day and a top of 28 degrees. And that is NITV Radio News. Your community, your conversation. NITV Radio. What's coming up next on the program? We continue coverage of the Vietnam Veterans Day, which was yesterday, including an interview with Yamaji Elder and Vietnam War veteran Graham Taylor, sharing his story about his time in the Army as an Aboriginal man and serving in Vietnam. And as you'll hear in the conversation, the flag is really important for him. We also explore in the program the PM's trip in the Torres Strait Islands, discussing Indigenous Voice to Parliament with Islander elders. 
In ITV Radio, we also feature a conversation with three young actors ahead of the world premiere of Somebody's Daughter's Theatre Company's She Swallowed That Lie, a play which has been created and performed by women with a lived lived prison experience and marginalised people from regional Victoria. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. I'm Bertrand Tungendami on NITV Radio and my guest is Graham Taylor, a respected Amangu Yamaji elder from Western Australia, joining us to share his story as a Vietnam War veteran in the sidelines of Vietnam Veterans Commemoration Day. Uncle Graham, before we explore your time in the Army and in the war in Vietnam, can you tell us a bit about yourself in a few words? Um, myself, well, I'm living in Geraldton. I've got two older sons, 42 and 41, and they have children of themselves. One son's got six children, and the younger one's got one child. Um, I've been living here in Geraldton for the last 42-odd years. Um, I'm a member of the RSL here and um, with the Bundiara community here in Jilton, Bundiara Aboriginal Corporation. That's about it. We're catching up with you in the context of uh, the uh, of August 18 is uh, the day to commemorate the yeah, Vietnam veterans. The yeah. Viet- Vietnam veterans. Tell us about uh, your experience going into the army and then serving in Vietnam. Well, my experience in the army recruit training was pretty hard. I went to Kapuka in 1970. There was a little bit of racial discrimination there from one person. But when I went into the infantry training, I didn't get any. And in the battalion, I joined nothing whatsoever. Uh, No discrimination. We were all one family. In Vietnam, we were all the same. We were all brothers, and we still are at the moment. And um, we spent seven months in Vietnam, first as a forward scout, which is walking in front of everyone else, they're all behind me. I was clearing the path. And also the last couple of months as a platoon medic where I carried the medical bag, we were called a stretcher bearers. I spent seven months in Vietnam and six months in Malaya and also the last four years in Townsville, uh, North Queensland. When I got out, I joined the RSL here in Geraldton and I've had um, good friendships here. Only a couple of men who's in the RSL did not want the um, flag anywhere, the Aboriginal flag. I know we never fought under the Aboriginal flag but it's now recognised by the government as an Australian flag and also they didn't like doing the welcome to country they one person said it was a load of rubbish but i found out the truth about it and i took the paperwork to the rsl and hopefully they can read through it and know the facts about it um i spent 10 years in the main roads here just working on the roadworks 
Um, my two boys grew up here. One's still here with me. He more or less looks after me, plus his young son. And um, here I am now, today. Yeah. Did you have to fight hard to get the Aboriginal flag accepted or just one letter and uh, they heeded your uh, call? They still don't accept the Aboriginal flag, but um, we have a memorial for all the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander returned service people at Bundyara. We've got a nice big memorial there we built. And um, we always fly the flag there, but of course we fly, fly the Australian flag first, then the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander flag. Few of the men in the RSL do not recognise the Thursday Islander and Aboriginal flag. They just um, discriminate against it. I um, believe that, well, the Australian flag is the one that most of the men fought under, but I mean, if they only can just recognise the Aboriginal flag and Torres Strait Islander flag, even if they don't want to fly it on the flagpole, but just recognise it, you know? Yeah. And to be a part of the Australian history. And this is something you noticed uh, once uh, you returned. While uh, fighting in Vietnam, while serving in Vietnam, I'd say, uh, did you serve alongside other Indigenous men and women, or you're the only yeah, one in your Yeah, platform? we had another Indigenous person in, in my same platoon as me. He comes from Derby, but he lives in Perth at the moment. In the other platoons, there was at least one, two, three, four other ones who came from Victoria, Queensland, and um, I think Northern Territory, I'm not too sure. But overall, um, there wasn't that many, maybe about 10, 10 or 8 throughout um, about 500 men. How did it feel as an Indigenous person? You said you experienced some discrimination in the recruitment process. Yeah, that was in the early stages, but in Vietnam, we were all one together, you know. We were all in the same group and we had, we just got along. The blokes, uh, most of them are from eastern states, but we still keep in touch with each other and a lot of them are here in WA. The ones who actually went was in the jungle with me and my mates, we were still like family. When we got out in civilian life, and then other people who did not serve with me and was in different um, platoons and companies, they said that that's their own idea and that's, you know, that's what they think and um, they were entitled to it. Yeah. So I just let it be and, you know, don't worry about it. In all the war stories, people from the opposing sides uh, sometimes end up connecting. Did you get to connect with any, get to know any Vietnamese, uh, you know, the people you're fighting against? Did you get to meet any and then um, get to know them? Well, the only ones, the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese soldiers we saw were dead ones because we, um, you know, shot them. 
But when we had leave, we went into a town, Vung Tower, and we met a lot of ladies there, of course, you know. We got to know them. Yeah. But when we left, they were left behind, and I don't know if they are still alive or whatever happened to them. And now, this day, we commemorate uh, Vietnam veterans. Would you have a message, something to say about uh, this day or even your experience? Any message, anything you'd like to add to the um, conversation? Yes, um, just hope all the people who never went to Vietnam realize how uh, hard it was for the Vietnam vets when they were over there and plus coming back to Australia. You know, we didn't have a celebration until years after, but they are slowly recognising the Vietnam vets for what we done, even though the war wasn't a popular war. But we're still surviving, and hopefully we can go on more and more, you know? And that was... Um Graham Taylor, a Vietnam War veteran, and this story is published on our website, sbs.com.au slash NITV Radio. NITV Radio, share our stories on Facebook. Welcome back. Now, for the first time, the Australian War Memorial has published a list of the names of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander men and women who served in Vietnam. So far, the list includes just 250 names, but the War Memorial is calling on the public to help that list grow. And a warning, this story contains reference to Aboriginal people who have died. Brooke Young has more. 60,000 Australians served in the Vietnam War. But we never knew exactly how many of these soldiers were Indigenous. That is, until now when the Australian War Memorial published a list of their names. Ngunnawal and Gomoroi man Michael Bell is the Indigenous Liaison Officer at the AWM. We've started the list with 250 uh, names that are published today and what we're trying to do is have the general public remember and look at their list and see if we have missed their family or their descendants. I'll also call on the non-Indigenous veterans who served with other Aboriginal veterans in Vietnam to review the list for inclusion of the men that they served with. Bunjalung man David Williams is on that list. He joined the Navy at age 18. So I got me auntie to sign me up, I didn't tell my mother but, and I went up to Brisbane, got her to sign me up and the question, one of the questions was can you fight mate, and I said those I can't beat I can outrun, sign here son National service used to be compulsory for 20 year old Australian men but Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders were offered an exemption but plenty, including David Williams signed up anyway They let us in, and I thank those officers and that, uh, that allowed us in because it's give us, for those who went overseas or elsewhere, give us other skills that we needed to come back and run our communities or help run our communities. As Indigenous Liaison Officer Mr Bell points out, such selflessness deserved recognition. But that's a great reflection of the dedication and willingness of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander to, to serve, defend their country and also provide their civic duty despite the restrictions that were still being imposed by government policy. But for Mr Williams, it was just Australians supporting one another in a time of need. It just just cemented that belief I had among, about mateship, you know, and, and I don't care whether I like you or not, it's irrelevant. But if you need a hand, 
I've got to give it to you. That's where I'm at, you know. And and I was just great. I know it's not the job for everyone, and um, but I felt special. A guiding light for Indigenous soldier recognition was the late Reg Saunders. At just 24 years old, he was the first commissioned Aboriginal officer in Australian history. His achievements are now commemorated in the Australian War Memorial, the only individual to have a dedicated gallery. His great-granddaughter, Brianna Humes, says he continues to be a true inspiration. For young Indigenous Australians growing up, that honestly, like, we could just achieve so much more than what people anticipate. Michael Bell from the Australian War Memorial wants public assistance to add more names to its list of Indigenous veterans to hear their experiences of war. I'm encouraging everybody um, to go onto the list, have a look at the, the names that we've already identified and if we have missed somebody, please let me know. That way we can give those people their due recognition that they, weren't in, they didn't get at the time but they are entitled to. Recognition for service to country. Brooke Young, SBS News. Visit sbs.com.au slash NITV radio. Another story from the newsroom. World Prime Minister Antonio Albanese is on a two-day trip to the Torres Strait to advocate for his plans for an Indigenous voice to Parliament. He's accompanied by Indigenous Australians Minister Linda Barney and Queensland Senator Anita Green with a cultural lunch and meetings with elders on the agenda. Brooke Young reports. The Prime Minister has landed on Thursday Island, eager to hear the stories of Indigenous Australians from the Torres Strait. It's not just a matter of Aboriginal people, it is also uh, Torres Strait Islander people uh, that will be recognised in our constitution if the referendum is carried and that we'll have a voice. He's calling the Indigenous voice to Parliament an outstretched hand of friendship from First Nations people to the rest of Australia. Uh, We know that if you consult people and give them that sense of ownership over change that impacts them, you'll get greater buy-in, you'll get better results, and that's why uh, there's such strong support. Accompanied by Indigenous Australians Minister Linda Burney and Queensland Senator Nita Green, Mr Albanese will spend two days in the Torres Strait, hoping to give a voice to those that are too often unheard. Meetings with local elders, female leaders and community groups are all on the agenda, as well as a cultural lunch with young Torres Strait Islander people. It's Linda Burney's first trip to the region. We've had a fabulous morning meeting with community groups, including the Torres Strait Regional Council, and uh, listening and talking about the voice to Parliament. Mr Albanese has reiterated the themes of his recent speech at the Northern Territory Gama Festival. His main message is that an Indigenous voice would help Torres Strait Islander people to advocate for action on important issues like climate change. They are interested in that, but they also want to lift up opportunity for their people in education, in health. They want to close the gap in life expectancy. And they see a voice to Parliament as being one way in which they will be able to advocate uh, for the sort of changes that they will have a sense of ownership over as well. The Prime Minister's visit comes just a day after Minister Burney met with the nation's Indigenous Affairs Ministers to discuss how to best implement the Uluru Statement from the Heart. At the meeting, all state and territory ministers agreed to back the federal government's work towards enshrining an Indigenous voice in the Constitution. Minister Burney believes all states and territories are taking a proactive approach. Everyone's at different points 
which is fine, but everyone is at some point. I just detect that there is a real sense of change in this country. I think state and territory governments are absolutely fundamental uh, to closing the gap as well as uh, implementation of the Uluru Statement. And that's certainly the way in which I'm approaching things. Ministers are set to meet again at the end of the month at the Joint Council for Closing the Gap, where progress on the national agreement will be discussed. Mr Albanese has vowed that this trip to the Torres Strait will not be his last as Prime Minister, assuring community leaders that he wants to leave permanent footprints. One of the things that we're doing is going out there and, and having dialogue with people. That's the important of this stage. It's a growing conversation across the country and the government hopes it will give First Nations people a powerful voice. Brooke Young, SBS News. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. I'm Bertrand Tungandami on NITV Radio and I'm joined by three young actors, Chiara, Haley, and Kashak, ahead of the world premiere of She Swallowed That Lie, a play which has been created and performed by women with a lived prison experience and marginalized young people from regional Victoria. Now, ladies, before we explore She Swallowed That Lie, produced by uh, Somebody's Daughter Theatre Company, can you tell us about yourselves, introduce yourselves to our listeners, please? My name's Haley. I'm 19. I'm from the Palawa tribe. The character that I play in She Swallowed That Lie is named Charlie. She's an 18-year-old girl and she's living in a resi unit. And if you don't know what that is, it's a residential unit. Um, and she is just trying to get on with her life, but there's a few bumps through the way. And she, I guess you could say, spiralling down into a bad path. She eventually ends up in a house around getting bad stuff, bad people and stuff, and then it takes the support and love from others to kind of realise that there's more to life and there's more things that I can achieve rather than just going down that spiral and living in a residential unit, as most kids will probably think. I'm Kiara. I'm from the Gunjidamara tribe. My character is Bailey. She's also an 18-year-old young girl. Bailey's homeless due to family issues. My name's Kashak. I'm South Sudanese. And my character's name is Alek. Um, And if, you know, people in the South Sudanese community probably know who Alek Wick is. And she, um, yeah, the name is inspired by her. She was the 90s model who walked the, I'm pretty sure it was Betsy Johnson's show. And she had to, she was forced to wear like a platinum blonde wig, like her other white co- um, model colleagues. And she, um, even though she refused to, so she walked down the end of the runway and she took the wig off and threw it. And I remember seeing that when I was like eight um, and just being so inspired and thinking, wow, we can do that. And so Alec is Bailey's neighbour and um, she gets a job in St Kilda Um as like a social worker and um, at the time she gets the job, she's living in Geelong with her family and she starts having thoughts about moving to St Kilda. Um, And upon working in St Kilda, she comes to realise, you know, that there aren't a lot of people that look like her, you know, there aren't any black people, there are no African people. And so she's confronted with um, a few different situations that sort of, you know, like Bailey um, sort of sends her spiralling because, you know, there are lies thrown her way. Um, about, you know, uh, belonging and not belonging and also 
yeah, going where you're welcomed, I guess. But um, yeah, I guess the lie that the biggest lie she's had to swallow is probably that she doesn't belong. And so, yeah, that sends her in many different directions, but eventually she finds her feet. Yeah, Kashaki just uh, said uh, one of the premises of the play, uh, the sense of belonging. But uh, the women in the play and yourselves uh, in your own lives share similar experiences. I guess that's one of the themes in the play as well. Yeah. Yeah. And you knew each other before uh, getting involved into this play and uh, getting involved with somebody's daughter theater company as well? Well, I knew Kashak and obviously the company because myself and Kiara were actually students there. So we did kind of know each other before that because we spent a few years with each other, I guess you could say. Yeah. Like Hayley said, we, me and Hayley went to the school that ran through the same program um, and which we ended up graduating year 12 with them. A shock. <laughs> we graduated um so that's how and then Kishak we ended up meeting her because then she started working for the company um and she did the drama with us and then we've all known each other for about three four years now since you kind of laughed and joked when mentioning your graduation saying that it was a shock was it a shock for you for your families or the community it was a shock for who Definitely ourselves. Probably other people too, but, you know, <laughs> probably our family. Yeah. I think the family would rather be, would be pleasantly surprised that you graduated and would be in shock. Uh, I would say most likely in shock with the joy and happiness. Definitely happiness. Like for me and Hayley, we both le- left mainstream school in year seven due to different problems. Um, and so I never, like my family and I didn't think that I'd ever graduate. I thought I was just going to stay at home after I dropped out and not touch a book again, but then, um, finally graduated. It was a big shock for all of us, I guess. Didn't expect to do it. Yeah. And myself personally, I was, I didn't think myself would graduate. Like my family and stuff they were convinced they were like they're like you can do this you know you just got to set out and do it by myself I was like there's no way I'm doing this you know like it's kind of not possible that's the way that I thought back then. Yeah, it's well known that some uh, conditions in the family and uh, home setting have to be met to foster good and uh, successful schooling well a family setting that's dysfunctional can not only prevent proper schooling but it can also lead uh, someone to end up in trouble including finding themselves in uh, the system am i correct to say that that is uh, one of the ideas you develop in the play and that is something uh, somebody's daughter's uh, theater company aims to address as well the work that we do um at somebody's daughter so we work with um women in the community, women who've been through the system. Yeah. Um, we work with kids that don't fit into mainstream schooling and we work with women in prison at the Dame Phyllis Frost Centre in Deer Park. Now uh, let's uh, look back at the theme you mentioned earlier, the theme of not fitting in, and it's one of the big themes that you develop in the play. She swallowed that lie and uh, not fitting in is one of those big lies that uh, she swallowed. Yeah, Tell us about... Uh, not fitting in, especially in um, some small town? A lot of my story 
in the various works that I've done with somebody's daughter, but also outside, it, it's always viewed through like a cultural perspective. And, you know, my family and I migrated to Geelong in 2006. And back then there was no diversity whatsoever. We're one of the only African families living in Geelong. And um, I know that, you know, I have a lot of cousins that live in Melbourne and they, they've never known what that's like, you know, to be the only person that looks like you in your street, in your suburb, in, you know, your whole region. It's, yeah, and it's something that it's an everyday thing. And I know that, you know, the rest of the women in the ensemble and Haley and Kiara could relate, but in different ways. But for me personally, it's always sort of viewed through that cultural perspective. And you, how did you experience uh, not fitting in? Well, I've never, like, had an issue with fitting in due to, like, my Aboriginality. Because as a child, I never really told people like I was Aboriginal due to my dad always telling me when I was younger, don't tell people. But I had a big issue growing up with not fitting in because of my family life. Like I have had, I had both my parents like on drugs, which caused kids in like primary school and high school to be like, oh, like pick on me because of that. So I had a lot of big issue with not fitting in due to my family. But for you, not fitting in was um, a completely different experience from uh, the others. I feel weird saying, like, about drug addiction and stuff, but I was addicted to marijuana, and because of that, I had a hard... It was hard to fit in, you know? Everyone was different. Everyone was doing their kid stuff, I guess you could say, when I was growing up too fast and I was doing all of this stuff that wasn't related to people that were my age doing the same thing. I felt like I was kind of different from them due to my drug addiction and, as Kiara said as well, the lifestyle that me and my family lived and had to live. That's why I think it's so very important to look at this performance because it's good for people to know that they're not alone and if you wanted to do something, you can do it. This performance, I feel like it could change a lot of people's perspectives. I've been and visited one of somebody's daughter theatre's performances before and it was just mind-blowing. So I think it's really important and there's so much songs and humor and laughter and it's really big one big slap (laughs) yeah you'll be having a good laugh while uh, performing uh, she swallowed that lie but at the same time you'll be really contributing to a good cause because i know once you've been through the way you've described not fitting in it's not easy to bounce back once you've been called names and uh picked on it's really really hard and it takes courage support and so many things to be able to bounce back exactly and that's the thing because it's like once you've cleared your life up and people still bring up your past they still say this that when they don't realize that it's possible to change you can change and your life can be be completely different but it always still gets thrown in your face i feel like so it's good to just open the perspective of yeah we might be drug addicted yeah we might have grew up rough yeah we might have been through the prison system but we have another life to that that's not all to us and the play is very playful with a lot of laughter a lot of fun a lot of dancing and a lot of music tell us about uh, the happier aspect of uh, this performance and the play in the performance is a lot of truth telling but then there's also the, all the big happy songs and legs. There's a lot of like we have a lot of joking characters. They're very good at playing a joker. So there's a lot of jokes cracked here and there. There's a few very happy little scenes that just bring tears to your eyes just because of happiness. 
it's balanced. Yeah. It's not too dark, but it's not too happy. You're still getting your word out, but you're still having fun. Yeah. <laughs> like, very balanced, I think. And if there's a line that uh, actually summarizes and characterizes uh, this performance, uh, she swallowed that lie, what would that be? Uh, well, was it walk a mile in our shoes for 80 minutes, but it's the best 80 minutes. <laughs> I didn't say that quite correctly, but it's a kishak, if you can correct me, if you know what I'm talking about. I think you said um, perfectly, yeah, yeah. I, I'll put it like this. It's a show that I would 100% want to see. I'm a bit jealous of the audience, actually. I wish I could buy a ticket and sit and watch it because, yeah, I don't think there'll ever be a show quite like this. It's a big one. It's It definitely is a big show. Like we have, obviously, we have the the Aboriginal, like Aboriginal people. We have the Sudanese. We have a lot of different cultures and a lot of different ages. Like as me and Hayley are the youngest, is 19, but then the ages go from 19 to 60s. <laughs> yeah. Big, big show. Alongside the performance, there will also be an art exhibition at Chapel of Chapel. Um, and the works include, um, yeah, original work from women from the inside at uh, Dame Phyllis Frost Centre and Tarangawa Prison. Now, Kshak, Chiara uh, and uh, Hayley, anything you'd like to add before I let you go? A uh, closing word? Walk a mile in our shoes for 80 minutes and it would be the best 80 minutes of your life. That would be my promo for this show. Got to get it out there. It's a good one not to miss. And that's all for today's program. I'm Bertrand Tungendame thanking you for your company this uh, Friday afternoon. Native Radio will be back with uh, more stories on Monday. I wish you a very beautiful and safe weekend. Bye for now. Want to hear more stories like this? Listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. 